This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Hello and welcome to another episode of Art of War. I'm your host, John. And I'm your host, Nick. And today joining us is the legendary Archon Skari to talk about the Dark Eldar. Well, I do try and remain deep in the webway, but you have pulled me out. He's so deep in the webway, very few people know his actual name. <laughs> uh, why don't you introduce yourself formally, I guess? Yes. Well, my name is Rizvan uh, Martinez, and uh, I live in Ontario, Canada, near Toronto, a little bit north of Toronto. And uh, I'm a content, crea- a content creator, YouTube uh, person, Twitch, and, and all that good stuff. Uh, that's what I do as a job. So, yes, and I play Dark Eldar mostly, hence all the... Uh, dark kin jokes. Wah, 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 wah. Pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're probably, I would say, probably the most well-known Drukhari or Dark Eldar player, or one of anyway, certainly in the discussion. Yeah, you know, the spider is one of them, of course. Um, I am a Puritan at heart, and I don't really play very many other factions. Um, I focus mainly on making Drukhari work, and I believe... 7th edition was really the testing ground when the book was very, very struggling in the meta. And, uh, and I sort of kept that, that light on the little, you know, lighthouse at the end of the dark tunnel being like, there's hope. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to try to talk about 7th edition. That's uh, that's a dark time, which we all try to forget about. <laughs> So I had to play another Riptide Wayne. <laughs> but as you can just see from the Nova results, Triple Riptide was doing pretty well in seven. Apparently it's still doing pretty well. It's so uh, maybe we're kind of seeing the last one. That is true. At least they don't shoot twice, though, because that's silly. That's true. Um, thank God they don't shoot twice. Okay, Scary. I guess let's kick the discussion off and talk about you, the list that you're currently playing. Uh, I think you're pretty excited Absolutely. about it, right? So you want to go through it sort of line by line what's in it um and then after you get done describing the list maybe talk about some other uh units or whatever that you've tested uh we can move the discussion there so let's start start from the beginning what's in what's in said magical list so the list that i'm playing right now um is a conglomeration of things that i've been playing most of the season at uh like gts like the hooded goblin or um, the stud or scrub or the ETC or the CTC or the capacity bloodbath. And it's sort of been, it has been moving away from my list that I spent most of last season and by season, I mean ITC season playing, which was mainly based around the coven. So Talos, grotesques, racks. And now it's um, sort of moving towards a more versatile sort of like a toolkit style list that is based around a cabal and witch cult detachments. So the list as it stands right now, barring you know a couple of changes here or there, is or the FAQ chapter proved that sort of thing, is a Cabal of the Black Heart Battalion with two Archons. One Archon is my Warlord. He's just Venom Blade Splinter Pistol. Really, really cheap. Really, really simple. The other Archon does make use of index choices. Uh, this is, of course, until the legacy thing sort of kicks in that we kind of saw teased at Nova where they're sort of encouraging the phase out of uh, index choices for competitive play, which means that I don't know how long this guy will be around, but he does have a blaster, a husk blade and a phantasm grenade launcher. So he's uh, just a very reliable blaster that hits on twos essentially. Then I have three squads of Cabalite warriors. They're five man strong. So I was toying with the idea of a big 20-man squad, which we'll get to in sort of like 
the second episode of the podcast where we talk about nuances and why. But uh, in this list, I just have the three five-man squads. Two units of five Mandrakes, one of the more underappreciated units in the Drukari book. Uh, however, the more I've been using them, the more um, excellent they, they seem. I love taking 10 to 15 in a list because of the versatility they add to the army. Three disintegrator, triple disintegrator ravagers. You are not really playing Dark Eldar unless you have those. And then two Razorwing jet fighters with disintegrators and missiles and the rifles. To top it off, the battalion comes with five Venoms that have one splinter cannon and a twin splinter rifle. So, uh, the debate between double cannon or just one cannon and the rifle simply comes down to the fact that I'm running six Venoms in this list and me taking the cannons off the Venoms allows me to take that sixth Venom, essentially, which uh, at the end of the day is better to have more Venoms, in my opinion. The second battalion... And then having more Venoms just gives you more flexibility and things to go grab objectives or go contest things or score you recon, blah, blah, blah. I yeah. imagine that's... Absolutely. In this case, it, you know, it allows me to have the venom in the the witch cult battalion, um, which we'll talk about more in depth and like the nuances and the strategy behind why that venom is in the uh, battalion. But it is a battalion of red grief, so cabal of red grief allows them to advance and charge, which means all the witches are very very fast. They can be even on foot, and their threat range is highly. Um, is highly enhanced by that um, that that advance and charge, but you get a, succu a succubus that has a shardnet and impaler just to go and hold stuff in close combat. I have a succubus with an archite glaive and a splinter pistol, gives her access to the red grief relic, and then we have three units of five witches, one of which has a shardnet and impaler, but they're just bare bone witches. They're there to basically provide support for the rest of the army. Uh, one unit of seven Reaver jet bikes with no upgrades. This is one of the more toolkitty units in the list. Two units of five Scourge with four Haywire Blasters in each and a Venom with a cannon and twin rifle. And that is, at the moment, the list that I've been testing and playing for uh, ITC. Uh, that is really interesting as far as some of the unique choices you make. Um, now, I see a lot of your lists uh, vary a lot in form of normal choices. Um, like you said, Mandrakes are kind of unorthodox, and I don't think I've seen anyone run the Reaver Jetpack Squad since the Codex first released and tested it out and tried it and decided against it. So I definitely want to know a bit more about those. The Reaver Jetpacks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, How in-depth would you like me to go with the Reaver Jetpacks specifically? Just like what are what is their role in your list? Why have you opted for them over other units? And like what what is your plan for those types of units? Mandrix and the so originally I had designed an army that that was built around two units of four Reaver jet bikes. So it, instead of running a battalion of witches, I was running an outrider detachment with two units of four Reaver jet bikes and a small unit of scourge. I opted to drop uh, some of the coven stuff I had put into the list to make it into a witch cult battalion and was able to amalgamate the two squads into one of seven instead of two of four this allows me to get better mileage out of say the 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 combat drugs and things like that the main role of that unit is it's like um you know i was listening to the episode where manny was talking about his imperial guard list and he has one death company smash captain that sort of bullies people into taking the first turn and it's one of those units that a bullies people into taking the first turn because of the incredible threat range that the reaver jet bikes have deploying the reaver jet bikes on the line you know with uh two inches uh extra two inches to movement combat drugs means that with an advance they have a 28 inch movement and they can charge after that movement which allows them to go really far back into a deployment zone uh, and touch things like wyverns or tank commanders or tie up infantry or stop mortar squads from firing or, you know, snipe a character that's too far out or, you know, isolate a, a support character and kill him, you know, before the start of the game, essentially. And just the latent threat and speed of the Reva jet bikes really helps in, in a lot of different matchups. They're not the 
be-all, end-all, and if the opponent focuses on them, they usually die. It's more the, the threat, the latent threat that's just looming in the background, sort of making my opponent double-think everything they're going to do. And worst comes to worst, you run the jet bikes up, you sacrifice them, but they buy you one or two turns uh, while the enemy has to try to deal with them. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I'm definitely a big fan of those units that kind of force your opponent into a certain move. A lot of high-end competitive 40K is forcing plays upon your opponent to kind of remove that ambiguity of what's going to happen. You're kind of making that decision. Um, and obviously, I, I guess you want second turn because it's so powerful in the ITC format, being able to always know exactly how much to kill to get kill more, or just getting the last say every round on who has more objectives. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. The speed is quite incredible, and they just add a lot to the list for only, you know, for less than 140 points. I think the unit's like 133 points or something like that. You know, so so you get quite a lot of mileage out of not a lot of points. 133 bikes, that's incredibly cheap. I had no idea. Oh, seven. Still. Well, seven. Seven bikes, but yes. It's 14, 14 wounds. They can be toughness five. They move really fast. They can do slash attacks and do mortal wounds with the stratagem that, that you know, and we kind of go through like specific tips and tricks on how to use that sort of thing. But, you know, all in all, they're just one of these units that it's like a, it's a threat overload. You put everything on the table and you have the planes, the ravagers, the bikes, the venoms, the witches, the mandrakes, the scourge, and everything's just like everything can do damage to you. And just, you know, so no matter what you kill, there's other things that can kind of pick up the slack for yeah. the rest of the list. So being that you're, you're deploying everything on the table, wouldn't you just want to go first? Like, why are you incentivizing your opponent to go first? Obviously, you want that mission advantage of kill more and hold more and that knowledge. But don't you think that if you're going to deploy on the line like that, just getting your alpha strike off is actually just more important? Well, 100%. If I roll and go first, then I'll totally take advantage of that. But a lot of the times in, you know, matchups that do, uh, that are a little harder for you to deal with, right? Um, all of a sudden, you know, your opponent giving you the second turn and giving you more control over the game can turn a bad matchup into a winning matchup based on terrain and, you know, other factors, of course. But if your opponent has looks at your list and goes oh they have reaver jet bikes and say it's an uh, say an itc specifically they have an even like we're playing one of the even missions where you know you get to choose to go first or second and say you took ground control as one of your secondaries right and they win the roll off and they go you know what you have jet bikes it's like i want to go first right it's like, great, okay, awesome. Yeah, That's going to help me exactly. play to my secondaries. That's going to help me. You know, you're going to deploy everything, and then I'm not going to put my Reavers out in the open. I'm going to hide them. You know, I'm going to do something different with the, or might deep strike something, or, you know, you just play differently based on it, but it gives you more control or sort of bullies your opponent into giving you a scenario that you are already comfortable with. So would one of your like standard deployments, I guess, be hiding your Venoms and Ravagers further back out of range, out of line of sight, wherever possible, putting the Reavers in line? Um, I guess the... Uh, no, yeah, it, 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 honestly, I think one of the hardest parts of being a competitive 40k player uh, and trying to teach people how to do it or, or you know, give people advice is we, we have a set number of things that we do, but everything is relative. So yeah, every single game is different, whether it's terrain. Like, there's a couple of things that you try and think of, like, don't spread out your army across the whole deployment zone. Focus on one area and, like, attack one area of the zone, or don't get trapped in a corner, try and spread out against certain armies. But um, in general, ideally, you want to make sure that the Ravager's in a position that they can move and have line of sight and range to things that you need to kill. Um, that the Archon that provides the reroll bubbles is going to be around the Archon, the Ravagers for the entire game, and with good positioning to try and get the two planes to get two turns of rerolls from the Archon as well, which is possible with good positioning. But it's but that's sort of like some of the main things I do. So, for out of curiosity, um, do you ever use the Ravagers to sort of, uh, like, say you were playing against uh, Astro Militarum as an example, um, if you put those Ravagers in a position, let's say on a flank, that kind of forces them to corral their tanks because they don't want them to get tagged to the other side of the board, thus lining up 
your ability to put your Ravagers to have good fields of fire on part of the board? I mean, do you ever do anything like that? Of course. You know, um, part of deployment or the deployment game is trying to make take an advantage um, like in mid-game. You know, a couple of key things is just make sure you take into account how far you can move or how far the enemy can move in order to either hide your models or put them in a position to shoot something. But you can always use them. Like a lot of the time, I'll use my Ravagers in so like and then put them in a place where they can kind of move into a big open area of the board and it kind of creates like dead zone where the enemy doesn't really want to go anywhere near this big open area because anything that's in that open area is just going to get disintegrated by disintegrators disintegrators do disintegrate things from what i hear yes they are um, amazing i one of the things that i find often with like gene stealer cult or any army that i play is if i deploy out of range or out of line of sight um just to avoid my opponent the threat of my opponent going first and blowing me up especially against something like caladiuses or knights or that he will happily just take turn at second turn if he's given the opportunity if he wins the roll off so i definitely like the addition of the bikes to try to incentivize them to go first to kill them, get that kill for turn one, get the old school point if they took it. But now all of a sudden you have bottom, you're gonna, your army's going to more or less be intact minus the sacrificial bike squad, and then you can start playing from there. Is that basically the idea you're trying to go for? Yep, so that's uh, in, in broad terms. It, it gives me the flexibility to do that if I need to. That makes a lot of sense and is really clever. Um, if you just brought guns to the firefight, I guess in the more traditional like three Ravager billion venom razor wing list and had no real external threat like nothing kind of outside the box there it's really just uh, if i if your guns can shoot me i'll go second and hide or if i can shoot your guns i'll go first and shoot them that kind of thing this kind of adds a whole other dimension to the game which i really like and it's not just about the dimension of of the game itself but the river jet bikes we'll, we'll touch this on the second episode but it's it adds a lot more versatility to the unit itself being um that you don't have to rush out and and like go kill things a seven man jet bike unit with the plus one attack drug for example they get three attacks each and you know hitting on twos after turn three and you know potentially getting double drugs to, to like double that up to four attacks per bike at strength four minus one ap like all of a sudden they they make a great counter charge unit for example yeah, I completely agree. Um, so I really like that addition, just that kind of outside-the-box thinking is, is kind of what it takes to be an excellent list writer. Um, I know a lot of people, as you said, think Mandrakes are underutilized or don't rate them too highly. What do you like about them and why are they there? What purpose do they serve? So the Mandrakes serve... They're, they're another ultimately... Um, they're another ultimately like toolkit unit. First of all, they have a built-in deep strike with the with the the uh, the scourge, which allows me to sort of like pull out some deployments from the enemy or or things like that. It also uh, forces the opponent to have to zone out the board on different areas of the battlefield. However, um, you know they're they're relatively inexpensive. Yet yeah, they're they're more expensive than some other unit choices that do about the same thing in other books. Um, but what I like is they're like about they're about as good or even better in some instances than witches in close combat. They're more survivable than witches and or cablite warriors in both shooting and close combat sometimes, and and they shoot better than the cablite warriors. So they do shooting, combat, and resiliency, and have the tactical flexibility of being anywhere on the board. And put those combined, and as soon as you start going, this unit does this, and it does this. And it does this. And the more ands you put a unit in, the, and then you go, you know what? And it's all in one package, which means if I'm going to a singles event where I don't know if I'm playing Genius Occult or I'm playing Imperial Guard or I'm playing Tau or I'm playing, but I have a unit that can do a variety of different roles, their role will change based on what I'm playing, which allows the bad matchups that I have to shrink to a lower amount or to go from a really bad matchup to a not so bad matchup based on how I use certain units. Um, they do mortal wounds, so they're really good against, uh, you know, every once in a while you roll a bunch of sixes to wound and they have a gun that's like a bolter, strength four, minus one AP. It's two shots at 18 inches, but any six to wound is a mortal wound in addition to normal damage, 
which then means they can get through invulnerable saves in a pinch. They can, you know, pick the last couple of wounds off of a tank if I need to, or, you know, just, just kind of just add that versatility. And there's, you know, like a Lord Discordant or something. Like one time I was like five Mandrakes and they do, you know, six mortal wounds to you because I rolled some sixes and all of a sudden you're that gets few and far between, but sometimes just like that crazy stuff happens and you're like, I wouldn't have that if I didn't have the ability to do it. So it sounds like they're kind of a Swiss army knife, right? Uh, you can apply them. Yeah. So maybe they're not quite as good as a dedicated close combat unit or quite as good as a dedicated shooting unit, but because of deep strike, you can use them as sort of a catch all um, for something that maybe you're you're a little bit weaker to, or you need a shoring up in an area, and you can just apply the liberally apply mandrakes and make the rash go away, so to speak. Exactly, and you can also use them as a counterattack unit, or you know even deploy them instead of having to like deep strike them or put them in a transport. Or there's a there's they they work in a lot of different ways as well, and you know one single mandrake has three attacks in close combat at strength four and minus one ap so a small five-man unit does 16 attacks with the sergeant that on turn three because of power from pain are hitting on twos and the strength four minus one ap so even in close combat they can go in and mulch hordes and you know do damage to armored targets and they're no slouches yeah it's a really interesting concept for a unit i know a lot of people um who might be less experienced often see things in the form of math um and it's like how much damage per points or how survivable per points this unit costs um not valuing utility because it's a more abstract concept most players often think that a unit should be specialized in its role a venom flies and shoots um a ravager flies and shoots whereas a mandrake is kind of like a, a little bit of everything in one package um it's mobile because it can deep strike it shoots okay it punches okay it's kind of sort of durable since it's minus one to hit and has an invul um, and you can make a minus two with like fast reflexes, of course, which is really annoying. Um, if anyone's ever played against playbears. Yeah. So I think that like functionality within your otherwise kind of one dimensional framework of like, I have flying guns that shoot you. Here's my venoms. Here's my ravagers. Here's my razor wing needs that kind of extra element, the mandrakes to give some, some deep striking potential and some, some combat capability which is for something very similar, and now you have the Rage for Jet Bikes as well. It's really, a lot of players I see running just pure Venom Spam plus Ravagers plus Razor Wing. I'm going to mathematically shoot you off the board, or I'm not. And you're playing more of all the aspects of 40, which is, I find, interesting. And generally, it's more balanced, and more balanced tends to be more consistent. Um, do you find you're ever out-muscled by your opponent because you're making these, I'm in quotes here, sub-optimal choices to make your army more well-rounded? It depends on a lot of the matchups a lot. It's actually funny because some of the big muscle armies are uh, definitely things that I do struggle with. And that would be like if I played against an army of just grotesques or talos, for example. That's probably one of the toughest matchups I have because of the fact that I've made a list that's so versatile. You know, very skewed lists can sometimes really give me uh, a headache. So yes, but it, at the end of the day, at, at that point in time, when the, it's a skewed matchup, I have to rely on previous experience playing that same army uh, with in like a specific mission, and then sort of not like play to the mission. You know, you know, because as as we like talking about, you know, you're either playing to the army that you're playing against, or you're playing to the mission. So the the list itself, when I can't play to the army because it's a skewed army, it allows me to play with the mission well with good mobility you know, decent uh, survivability, being able to hide or deep strike, whatever, taking out key targets and eventually winning out on the mission rather than trying to beat the army that I'm playing against. Yeah, so basically because you have a toolbox tile army which can do a lot of different things, you try to outscore and outplay the opponent who's brought the more brute force type of list. Is that accurate? Exactly. Makes a lot of sense. And I imagine that's something you would do to like a knight player or something like that as well. Exactly. So you're playing against like triple crusaders or Caladius tanks or, um, you know, a nine Talos or something that's just going to be a lot harder. You know, at that point, you're starting to look at how can you use the terrain to your advantage? How can you uh, use the deployment to your advantage? What units do you have to sacrifice to slow down and advance or move block? Are you going to try and, you know, wrap units to stop? 
the enemy from shooting you? Uh, do you have to try and kill one thing to the exclusion of all else uh, and then back off? Or do you have to like push hard and go right for the heart uh, while taking objectives? You know, These are all different factors, but what I like about the list specifically is that based on the scenario, I can pick uh, one or a couple of those different things and do them well, regardless of who I'm playing against or what they are playing. Right. Um, which kind of leads me into my next question. Um, your list is designed for ITC, um, but unlike most lists kind of designed for ITC, which are designed to not give up kills or deny kill more as much as possible, hold an objective or just completely board control as much as possible um, while not giving up any secondaries, you have an MSU army, which naturally is going to give up kill more a lot of them. Um, and on top of that, you're you're basically your opponent doesn't get four butcher's bills. He's not you. I don't know. So, how do you deal with the fact that your army is not particularly toned for the missions, but you your strategy for a lot of matchups is to play the mission? So, uh, one, it can I get the sec I get my secondaries well. I can go for headhunter recon. So you can talk about general strategies. But my army gets points well. The kill more versus hold more that's definitely a thing that i'm willing to give up early in the in the game but as the game goes on and the enemy starts losing killing power based on my target priority it normally becomes my army retains a lot of its hitting power later into the game and therefore it usually flips towards the end game and there's a lot of things like you know butcher's bill for example does not stack with big game hunter for example which means you know you can't kill a ravager and a venom and get a butcher's bill so you have to sort of pick and choose. They'd have to kill a venom or two venoms, and you know, and then a ravager in order to get their their headhunter and then or their big game hunter and a butcher's bill. So clever positioning or making sure that the units inside of a venom can disembark out of line of sight, or you know, making sure that I'm killing the mortars quickly in a, in an army or killing stuff that can kill my stuff that's hiding. You know, that sort of target priority really helps mitigate a lot of the the fall throughs of the list within the mission format while at the same time putting pressure on getting the bonus points in the games getting the hold more getting uh you know recon points secondaries or killing the things that are going to allow my opponent to get secondaries like the engineer points or the behind enemy line stuff right that makes a lot of sense actually so it's not that i guess there's two modes of thinking for itc it's one that you are a denial type army who's trying to not give up points so that by default you've scored more points to, than your opponent because he couldn't earn any. Or are you the army that's going to go out there and just score the points and not care about what he's giving? And I think you fall more into that second category. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, so my, my, my job is to go out and play the mission, right? So if I'm constantly worrying about what my opponent is going to pick, that's great. And a lot of the times, you know, my opponent might play Tau, right? And they might um, decide they want to take Butcher's Bill. And then what happens is, you know, they kill most of my army in turns two and three, right? And they only get two Butcher's Bill points. Because then from the rest of the game, you know, they've killed so much of my army in the first couple of turns that then there's no army left for them to score that, for example. Because it's on a player turn to player turn, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's a great way. A lot of... Uh, top play at ITC is strategically leaving stuff alive to make sure you can get it later on. Um, I know I did a lot of that at Nova the other day as well. Um, so almost like Tau, we just had Richard Siegler on a, a couple weeks ago to talk about his Tau army. Um, and he said he's an army that, that focuses on playing all six turns of the game. He actually described his army very much as a, I'm playing the mission. I'm not playing to table, but it often happens just because I'm able to shoot for six turns straight. Do you find something that you play a similar game where it's like you're okay losing the first half, like you were saying, to win the second half? Are you a late game kind of army in that aspect? Uh, it really depends on the ebb and flow of the game state, right? Because, you know, when if you can get a... If you can have a first good couple of turns in terms of shooting the opponent off the, ta off the table, killing key targets, um, or the target priority being on point or your enemy just failing an inordinate amount of saves, or, you know, there's lots of things that can happen. But usually what happens is I will 
sort of test the waters for the first couple of turns and then later in the game you pounce and just really if the snowball started going sometimes the snowball starts on turn two sometimes the snowball starts on turn one sometimes the snowball starts on turn four so sometimes you play the game four five and six to really bring the snowball home and sometimes your opponent takes first turn does absolutely nothing to you and then you start that snowball on your turn one and then it's over by turn four but whatever it is is when you hit hard with this list, you have to hit hard and you have to put the pressure on, but you can wait until you do that based on, you know, you're waiting for deep strikers to show up or your opponent fails a critical charge and then you can counter or you just use liberal application of Vect to sort of force that snowball effect into happening based on kind of throwing your opponent's game plan out of whack um, and then just kind of pushing that advantage from mid to late game. Yeah, so I guess your army is, is in essence an ultimate toolbox where sometimes you just focus on surviving and scoring points while others you survive, you plan on just tabling your opponent, kind of whatever comes naturally to the matchup and the situation. Um, how do you recognize going into the game, you know, you're at the tournament, you're on table 27, you're playing who knows who, and he hands you your list, his list, you hit him hit, and now you have to pick your second what goes into your thoughts on, am I going to kill this guy or am I going to hide for dear life while scoring points? What secondaries do you pick or what do you look out for to score those secondaries? And how do you just generally approach the game? Well, first of all, you have to understand what secondaries there are. There are 15 secondaries in the ITC, right? Out of those 15 secondaries. Is there really 15? Yep. So out of 15 secondaries in the ITC, one, two, three, Five of them are positional secondaries. Uh, one of them is mixed secondary, being old school. And then the rest of them are kill secondaries. So you have to understand whether your list can kill or position or do both. So being that my army is very flexible, I can usually pick a couple of ones that I really like. Like um, Recon is one of the easiest ones to get with any Eldar army. You know, it's just a matter of moving to a spot and you get a point, right? And being able to use Venoms or Razorwing Jet Fighters or you know, Deep Striking Mandrakes or whatever it is that you need to get up there. You can really sort of leverage the advantage of a positional um, secondary. Uh, things like King of the Hill, Ground Control. Um, I, never take King of, I, haven't, I haven't really taken King of the Hill. I love Ground Control. It's one of my favorite secondaries because of how defensive I play a lot of the time. It's about getting that advantage and stopping your opponent from allowing you to get onto the objectives at the end of the game, especially in missions, like not all missions, but in missions that have the objectives that you can actually get onto ground control. And then it just fits into that old Eldar mentality of playing the whole game and then jumping onto the objectives right at the end of the game and winning, right? Which, uh, you know, is like, is really fun to do. Engineers is very situational, but can be amazing against the right opponents. And then uh, things like uh, Big Game Hunter or Headhunter or Kingslayer based on who you're playing against. I don't really take Mark for Death very often because I find you know it allows the opponent too much control to hide things. Um, Titan Slayer is situational. It depends on if you think you can kill all the Titans. And then Gangbusters is, of course, a go-to if they have like three wounded units like uh, Eldar, Harlequin Jet Bikes or Grotesques or you know, Bulgrin or things like that you have to deal with in order to win the game. Gotcha. I guess my, my other part to my question is like, how do you determine what your role is in the match? Like, are you going to be the guy that kills the other one or is he going to be trying to hiding? And how does that impact your sickness? I imagine like if you're running around hiding, recon becomes a lot more appealing. Whereas if you're like killing stuff, you may focus more on those killing basic. So I usually play being being on the etc team and and you know you 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 have experience playing etc but at etc you know you don't just run out and like like yell and scream and move your models at full speed across the table to win the game you know you play a very methodical thinking game where you're not trying to overextend yourself you still want to win the match and uh, what I do is, I, it, regardless of who I'm playing against, normally there's two or three secondaries that play really well into my play style specifically, being recon, being ground control, because I, I, I'm more of a, of a, um, like a, 
passive, reactive player where I'm like, I wait for my opponent to make moves and then I counter these moves. Um, and then by countering the moves, I offer my opponent dilemmas and then they have to pick the worst of two of two dilemmas to like solve, you know, they can't solve one problem. They, they have to pick the lesser two evils and then based on what they pick, it, it kind of snowballs to the next thing. But if I'm say looking at an army that's going to hide all their tanks right in the back of the board, I might not go for big game hunter. If there's a giant army of horde that I don't want to spread out too much against, you know, I might not take recon because I don't want to overextend my list and then have small units of my army, um, get isolated and destroyed if i'm playing something like gene stealer cult and i know i'm gonna have to spread across the board to deny to zone deny or to deep strike deny then i'll be taking recon because it'll help me achieve other things in game as well as giving me points throughout the game if that makes sense so it's less about the specific army that i'm playing and it's more about you know how i'm going to play against the army that i'm playing yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I agree completely. You're, the the strength of taking a toolbox type army is using it differently in so many different scenarios. So that way, you can always leverage whatever your strengths are that makes sense against your opponent's weaknesses, given whatever his army strategy is that he's trying. Exactly. Um, to shift gears a little bit, unless John, you have any questions right now. I was just going to make an observation. It, to me, it looks like one of the primary advantages, and this is true for most all our lists, is you have extreme mobility in your list, which allows you to, when you're when you're sort of hiding and forcing your opponent to sort of pick his avenues of attack, if he overextends, you can punish him through the application of force because you can move your stuff in a way to apply that force anywhere on the board very easily because of the mobility. Is that is that one of the strengths that you would describe for your list? Mobility is one of the huge strengths of the Dark Elder Army or just Elder Armies in general. It's one of the reasons why I love the army so much because you can win and or lose a game based solely on the movement phase. That's interesting that you would say that because Jim Vessel, when he was on, said exactly the same thing. He's just like, well, you win in the movement phase and that's pretty much it. And then the rest is just... I think that's a common uh, notion amongst all top players. If you recall when we had Richard as well, he said his Tau army wins in the movement phase as well, even then it was like, how does it not win the shooting Tau? But it makes a lot of sense. If you think about it, your win conditions are often standing in certain spots to accrue points, be that holding an objective or standing in the recon or whatever. And by maximizing your ability to do that through the movement phase or even using the assault phase as a second movement phase, as uh, Gene Sierra Cult can often do or Orcs or something like that, you really amplify your ability to move and engage the table and score your points. That's why guard are so dominant because they have so many abilities to move a lot with the move, move order and uh, jumping up and putting down Blood Angel Smash Captain um, and all the other guys we've brought on, as you said, break the movement phase is the most important phase. So that doesn't surprise me at all, really. I think one of the things to note for the movement phase, if you're an aspiring competitive 40k player, it's it's the one of the phases that is most it's like the most in your control right anything that requires movement is something that you can control you you have a model you have a certain distance they can move and you can move that model that distance or up to that distance so there's very little in terms of factors that affect that action that you're making it's just where does he end up is he in line of sight? Is he not in line of sight? Is he in range of something? Is he not in range of something? So you have so much control over that, where, which is why a lot of the things that affect movement, like Thunderfire Cannons or you know, Psychic Powers or whatever, are so powerful in-game because it can completely change the pace of a game and take the control away from the opponent in a phase that should be totally about your control. Because dice are dice, and any good competitive player is going to tell you don't blame the dice if you go around saying oh i lost that game because i rolled badly or he rolled well or whatever well what could have you done that you could actually control to change that game you know and movement is one of those things that you have like almost absolute control over so it's very hard to mess it up if you know what you're doing i could not agree more one of the things i preach all the time in my knights pro group is just don't blame the dice there's always something you could do better um also what defines a really good 40k player is his ability to mitigate the impact of dice screwing you over. So if you just rely on your dice rolls um, to, to carry you through, even if it's mathematically likely 
to happen. To win a tournament, you have to achieve that that percentage eight times in a row to win like Nova or LVO or Depticon. That's really, really hard. Um, so instead of focusing on just rolling better, which is ultimately out of your control, um, focus on the aspects you can, like you said, and you'll find a lot more success, which is why your army style works, in my opinion, is because all of it is so movement-based. Yeah, it's so movement-based. Um, and you know, one of the things that you... Uh that you get to do is, uh, you know, things like focus fire, you know, and things like that are just key strategic things that help you. You know, like so many times you play games and people split their fire or whatever. Like I'll have one model left in like a Skitari unit hiding in cover. I'm not going to take any chances. I'm going to shoot an entire Ravager at that guy just to make sure he dies. So it might seem that I'm lucky or that the dice don't go my way, but what I'm doing is I'm allocating more resources than I actually should need to make sure that the dice variance doesn't screw me, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that's, that's, I think, almost every good player I've spoken to basically feels the same way like mitigate the dice focus on what you know um and that could that's a factor through list design uh if you really feel like you ha- you couldn't play have played better that game and situations you were in just should have worked and they didn't you probably screwed up your list to get yourself in that spot in the first place but i'm kind of getting off topic here uh, i did have one question to ask um why the transition from the more traditional, I guess, Dark Eldar builds, which are like Talos and Grotesques, along with Ravager and Razor Wing Fire Support, um, or like a pure Venom Spam, I think we've already covered that, but why why no Covens? I think that's got everyone scratching their heads. One of the biggest reasons I've decided to play without the Coven is because my I found that trying to fit them into the style of list that I was playing was looking at me trying to do way too much with my list. And what it did is was then diluting the strengths of the list. You know, I could decide to drop, you know, a unit of Scourge and then the Planes and then put in Talos, for example. But then, you know, I, I basically, my list kind of skews too much in the jack-of-all-trades direction where I have a little bit of everything, but then not enough of one thing to really win some harder matchups. Whereas taking the Coven out, yes, I'm making a sacrifice and I'm, going to miss out on a couple of things like talus and grotesques however the list that i'm building in its style is a lot more focused and allowing that focus to um to shine offsets the fact that i don't have the coven in the list the second aspect to that is coven grotesques and talos give up a lot of secondary points and even though they are tough and hard to kill i felt that with the talus and grotesques i was pretty much down eight points at the start of every single game because I had to commit with these units and the enemy had to kill these units. And usually what happens is they would die. And then that's eight secondary points that were just so easy to give up. Uh, whereas I didn't have as much control over stopping them from giving up all these points. That said, do you find your army is just too fragile without them? I find like the, the grotesque and talus version backed by Ravagers and Razor Wings often had an actual threat overload of like way too much toughness six invul save to go through. You can't just let the grotesque and talus live. They will bowling ball right through your army and kill you. So you have to shoot those, but that means you're not shooting the ravagers and razor wings. Since they're shooting you, they're shooting you for like four or five, six turns. You're also probably dead. So it's, it almost put your opponent in an impossible situation. Unless you found that as 40k has evolved from the meta standpoint, people could actually just go through it all. Is that what you're saying? So it's not just that the meta has evolved because, yes, the meta has evolved to kill knights or kill talus or kill grotesques. You know, there's a, there are a lot of tools that are built into armies nowadays that allow them to deal with high toughness um, uh, units such as, um, such as the talus or grotesques. You know, it also meant that there were certain matchups that were even harder for me to win when I was playing the Talos and Grotesques, uh, such as Death Watch. You know, running into a, an army of 50 Death Watch Marines with, with Super Bolters uh, meant that my, my Grotesques and Talos do not last very long against things that just give you 50 saves at the Wound on Twos, right? And so what it does is it, is it yes, it might not be as good I might not have as big of a bully unit in terms of some matchups 
where I can't just go into the middle of the board and go, take me off the middle of the board. I have to play a lot smarter with it. However, if I play against a Death Watch army, for example, I have a much better chance at winning than if I was playing my Grotesque and Talos. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a very interesting evolution. Do you think you could see the meta kind of taking a step back in the future, like maybe as flyer spam stops becoming so dominant, maybe as the game evolves, we actually experience some nerfs this time in the FAQ coming up, or uh, as Caladius is getting nerfed, just reduce the strength, or um, as as basically the, the long range explosive anti tank kind of naturally goes away. Uh, or forcibly goes away, do you think you could see yourself resorting to that style of build, or do you think your current version is simply better? I feel like the Talos and Grotesque build is still one of the strongest Drukari builds you can do. And if you're newer to the game and newer to playing Drukari, I would steer you towards or recommend that you play with more Talos and Grotesques in your lists. So Ravagers, Planes, Talos, Grotesques, and Racks. You have good saves, you have good toughness. So it allows you to learn how to play with the Drukari with a lot, um, uh, you know, and, and, and not be so worried about things dying or things like that as well. So if you can roll four ups, you can roll four ups all day. However, I felt that as I got into the higher tables, and especially against matchups like Gene Steeler Cult and things like that, the, the Coven units aren't as efficient against top-level players um, where I need more tools in order to deal with a lot of the cool toolkit lists that I am going to be facing against as I move into the top tables in an event. Yeah, I definitely know exactly what you mean there. Um, when I played uh, a very different list in a very long time ago, about a year ago at the 2018 Nova, I ran two large units of grotesques with the old Yunari Shining Spheres and the old Yunari Guardians and the Incarn. And it felt like, before I reached that evolution list, when I wasn't adding the Gidari, it felt like my army didn't have enough flexibility. It only knew how to go for it. It didn't have other options inside of it. So I definitely felt like I was missing that, that flexible element to my list to compete with other people. Flexibility. Um, so I definitely know what you mean on that front. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things, you know, being that I do play Dark Eldar almost exclusively at a competition level, unless I'm doing something fun for the Patreons, like, you know, running a challenge where they get to vote and say, run Tyranids, and here's 10 stupid things to do with Tyranids every game. And I you do that sort of thing. But in order to keep myself like mentally stimulated, I have to make sure that I'm not just playing something that's just move models up the board and hope that I can roll four up saves and stay on objectives to win the game. I need to improve my game constantly. And the only way I'm going to do that is by getting out of my comfort zone and finding units or finding things that work that are uh, uh, away from the norm. The, the reason a meta gets created is people at the top create the meta. They put a list that nobody thought was possible in a position like a spotlight and all of a sudden it becomes a thing because people see the potential. Absolutely. I did have a, a quick question, Scary. So, in, and maybe I'm just not familiar with Dark Eldar, but uh, it looks to me like your list might lack a little bit of punch in punching through like toughness eight sort of stuff. Is that one of the weaknesses for the list, or what am I missing? So that's I, it, it. That's definitely something that gives you an appearance to start off with. Um, you know, as for toughness eight, if you're looking at non-vehicle, non-Titanic units. You know, anything that's high toughness, poison helps with. Um, but anything that's toughness six, seven, eight, or nine gets wounded on five pluses by disintegrators. And if you have the ravagers and planes all focusing fire on something with, you know, two damage, strength five, minus three AP, with an archon nearby rerolling ones to hit and ones to wound, you'd be surprised how much damage those ravagers can do, even if they're only wounding on fives. No, I, I certainly believe it. I mean, uh, I've got a good friend that plays Drukari, and uh, my least, least, least favorite thing are the Ravagers, because they always just own me. They're just awful. It's not just that. It's that if they... Um, I know Scarry mentioned that Three Crusaders was a version that was rough for his list because they shoot back. If it's like Gallants or that type of toughness eight, um, or even Lehman Rust Punishers, which shoot a ton, but not so much that Scarry cares... If the routers get to shoot for multiple turns over and over and over again, 
it will add up a lot. Um, so in any one given turn, he probably doesn't have the firepower to kill a knight, I would imagine. But if they get to just keep on shooting, he certainly does. Well, my army will drop a knight in one turn. No. Oh, I stay. Yeah, it, it will. I've got I've got two units of Feywire Scourge. I have two units of Mandrakes that do mortal wounds. I've got the planes and I've got the Ravagers. If I want a knight to go down, it goes down. Important benchmark to hit, I guess, is if you can knock out a knight when you need to. Yeah, and then they try and um, you know rotate their shields, and then I vect that, and then they try to get back up again, and then I vect it, and it's dead. done. Yes. <laughs> so um, I do want to cover uh, what you use Vex for, how you feel about Ooh, that, how you spend your CPs, and just general matchup stuff. But I think I want to save that all for episode two. So unless, yeah, John uh, or Ridzen, unless you have uh, something you'd want to cover for this one, I think we've covered a lot as far as your general strategy and how to approach the game. Absolutely. I can't. I'm super excited. Thanks a lot for listening to episode one. If you like more Scardcast stuff, check out the uh, YouTube channel. I just do stuff on youtube.com slash Scardcast. You can find links to the Patreon page and the Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Twitch and all that good stuff. I will say, uh, as a consumer of your content, Scary, uh, if anybody hasn't checked you out, which they have to kind of be living under a rock to not have checked you out, but if, if you live under said rock... I will tell you that uh, he produces very, Scarry produces very high quality content where you can learn a lot about uh, high level competitive play and you should definitely check it out. Could not agree more. Uh, thanks for coming on, Scarry. Very much appreciated. Um, if you're interested, guys, in part two of the episode where we go through bad matchups and just how he approaches different games and what he spends his command points on, what to look out for, and how he just thinks about the matches, um, check that out on Art of War 40k Patreon. And uh, we will see you guys later. Bye, everybody. Peace. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at AOW40K.com, where we go deep into details of optimal play. This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect on Facebook. Just look for AOW40K. 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 Till next time. Party time, yeah. Rave time, yeah.